Hello, everybody. Welcome to AO Leadership. Uh, I'm Wade Roof, and uh, I am here with the great and powerful uh, Deacon Harry Prem. And I appreciate you being here with us today, uh, Deacon Harry. Well, thank you, Pastor Wade. Um, Harry, before we really dive into all of this, we were talking right before we hit record about um, how you kind of came to be a deacon in the Lutheran Church. Um, I would simply probably start out by saying it wasn't the... the um, path that most people walk to get to that place. So um, you're a member here at Mount Tabor, and you are a deacon in the Lutheran Church, but not within the four walls of the church. You are connected to some things outside the church walls. So how did you get to this place? And then maybe talk a little bit about how you got to the place you are now before retirement, Mm because you just cashed that uh, that check that uh, not too long ago. Yes, so. I did. Uh, congratulations, too. Thanks, sir. So you you started out in the United Methodist Church. Yes, I did. Um, when when I felt my call to the ministry, um, at that point, my path and you know the expectation was that I was going to um, be an elder in the United Methodist Church, which meant I was going to be ordained and I was going to serve a church as an associate pastor, um, associate minister, or as a senior minister. And when I started in my ministry, I always gravitated towards more of the faith formation type activities that were more educational based and small group work. So I really enjoyed working with cradle to the grave, however you want to call it, um, principally around, you know, curriculum-based, Sunday school programs, programs for youth around small group work, maybe some work with retreats, doing programs with adults, um, educational-focused. So, but but did, to stop you there for a second, they were, they were pointing you toward ordained ministry. Yes. To be a pastor in the church. Yes. Um, did, the, did you feel like the... United Methodist had a good grip on any other track other than the ordained ministry track? Well, there was the Dacral ministry at the time. So Dacral ministry, which it's always been word and sacrament, word and service. So at the time when I had been ordained a probationary deacon, which happened in my second year of seminary, and I would spend one more year, which would be my third year in seminary. And then that, that during that year, I was, would be my final leg or requirements mm-hmm. to be ordained. Some personal things happened. One of those being, you know, I met someone, you know, I met my wife. And, you know, in the United Methodist Church, you itinerate. Um, so, but my wife was in a profession. You know, I, I did my undergraduate work and my graduate work in seminary at Emory University in Atlanta at the Canada School of Theology. And my wife was getting her master's and her PhD in um, what is now biostatistics. So she was very focused in what she could do. Well, that looking at my trajectory for what my ministry would be like in the local church 
and this emerging passion for really working in Christian education, I felt like I needed to do something different. And so I began to explore the diaconate or diaconal ministry. Um, Now, you have to remember, this was 30 years ago. Sure. So, Well, the reason I ask that question, too, is while the diaconate and the, the, I'll just say the deacon track has been around for quite some time, Mm -hmm. um, it has just been recently that it feels like the church has a grip on how to walk somebody through that track. Um, it, it, in the, several of our conversations with, with some of the deacons that I was in seminary with, um, you know, unless you were kind of walking down the, the, the old pastor track, mm-hmm. um, there was like this sense that, I mean, we knew, we kind of knew what to do with you, but it, you were just, we almost didn't know what to do. With you. I mean, I don't know how else to kind of say that. They they would figure it out, but mm-hmm. it was it was like I, I'm so happy that we have something more concrete now. Uh, and I think language is getting better around that about roster leaders rather than pastors. I think um, uh, also the church itself, the parish itself, um, they've always kind of known what to do with the pastor. Like the pastor's supposed to be up there and preaching, presiding, mm-hmm. doing things, visiting those kind of things, but. You know, what do we do with this other person over here? I, you know, that is very, very true. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was very fortunate in the United Methodist Church that when I decided to make my change, the interesting thing was is that I was the first ordained, quote unquote, word and uh, sacrament person who decided that he or she wanted to go in what was pretty much classified as a lay position sure so it was it was like okay what are we going to really do with him what what are the requirements <laughs> supposed to be we're still asking that question yeah, and we are. what are we going to do with you, you know and what's <laughs> and what we are you know and and so the interesting thing though is that when you fast forward to when i decided to join the elca and one of the reasons why i did was one i you know my wife was brought up lutheran mm-hmm. um my in-laws were, were very active in the Lutheran Church. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a member of Mount Tabor. You know, I probably spent in our in our early years of our marriage. I was fortunate that I served in a United Methodist Church, very close to this congregation. Yeah. So, with grandparents here, we wanted our kids to have that experience. They wanted them to participate. So, I spent as much time in this Lutheran congregation. It seemed like as I did in my United Methodist sure. Church. So, you know, I got that experience of both. And then when I really decided to, to look at, and I, I hope that maybe in a few minutes we'll be able to kind of transition this into confirmation. Yeah. Because, you know, I, one of the, one of the things, the, the, the issues that brought us to Mount Tabor and really helped me make my transition was, you know, I wanted our children to have the same kind of confirmation experience that their mother had. Right, because I heard you say in class the other day, you did not have that kind of experience. I did not. I did not at all. So, you know, kind of going a little bit back, you know, when I made that change to join the LCA, what was really interesting for me is when I joined the diaconal community um, before 
they had the, the roster for deacons, mm-hmm. I could look back and compare what my candidacy was in the United Methodist Church that brought me to become a deacon. Because in the United Methodist Church, you know, you could only be a doctoral minister. It wasn't until 2000 that the United Methodist Church created the office of a full-time deacon. Mm-hmm. So at 2000, you no one who wanted to go into a word-in-service ministry could actually enter candidacy for doctoral ministry. Sure. So, and as you know, you know it's a two two step ordination in the United Methodist Church. We'll get into all that. Sure. But all that sure. had to be worked out. Well, I was fortunate that I had the opportunity to serve in the day on the board of doctoral ministry, and then I had the opportunity to actually chair that conference board, which was the whole state. So, it. it in the United Methodist Church, I think this is important if you bear with me for a moment. In the United Methodist Church, a diaconal minister served in the local church. Mm-hmm. There were there were a few that went beyond the walls of the, the church, but we had to be specialized or mm-hmm. certified in a ministry. Sure. We also had to find our own positions. And so, you know, most likely you were either focusing in on youth ministry, general Christian education. Um, you could be a director, certified as a director or a minister. Because my background was as a ordained, you know, associate pastor, that was my experiences, I automatically began moving towards being a minister of Christian education. Mm-hmm. So I was grandfathered in as a deacon um, at that point. Fast forward, when I joined, was going to join the, the ELCA, now think about it with me. At this point, it was like 2007, um, about the time when I was going to be you know, either consecrated or ordained, there wasn't a deacon. Sure. There wasn't an ordained person. There was only person who was ordained in the ELCA at that point was a pastor. That's right. So the question was, okay, what do we do with him? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what does he do? I, 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 my requirements at that point, I needed to take, you know, Lutheran theology was my only training, you know, theologically. The next was I still had to do a project in the church, but I didn't have to have an internship. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to remember at this point, I had already in my job I retired from beyond the local church was a state agency. Right. Um, so that, you know, for me, when I made that shift, the question was, okay, will the ELCA just accept me, you know, just bring me in? because I'd already served for years in the United Methodist Church. I already had a theological background. I could understand taking the class. But did I really have to do the other things? Right. Um, personally, I loved the, you know, the two-week DACL ministry event. You know, I thought that if I was just exploring my call 
just really trying to find out where I wanted to be, that was an outstanding event. You know, the the speakers and looking at the theology, you know, passed away and looking at um, the different ways of serving in what would be the ELCA because my view at that point was the ELCA expected me to serve beyond the local church. Mm-hmm. It was rare for someone to work within the local church because that was what an AIM did, an right. associate in ministry. Right. So, you know, here I come, and I'm like, um, I thought if y'all wanted me to do something, I need to go find a job. If you didn't want me to stay at my current position in the state, that I would need to find a job in a local church. And I had the background to do Christian education, faith formation, whatever. You know, I had served in areas where I was able to be a hybrid. If you think about your traditional, the LCA, an associate pastor, well, I could do those word and sacrament things to the point that the polity of the church, the, the requirements of the church would allow me. You know, as we know, a deacon does not administer sacraments. That's one of the key mm-hmm. distinctions between ordained pastor and deacon. But I support and help the senior pastor that I'm working with in that moment. So, you know, what where was I supposed to fit? For sure. So when I remember I remember going <clears throat> to the Senate Council or the or the candidacy committee for the Senate and I was in my had my conversations and it was it was like, you know, they were shocked when I my view of the diaconate was my base was in the congregation and then I helped my members, the people I, I was in ministry with move out into the world. It mm-hmm. wasn't that I was out in the world bringing people into the church or to address those issues that way. So that was a little bit different for me. So, well, so. but what a vital part of ministry that, that the church, mm-hmm. and I'm going to say the church, kind of lacks mm-hmm. is a connection to what we do Monday through Saturday. Mm-hmm. Sunday, I feel like we have Sunday down pretty well. But then what connects us to the world around us? And again, I think with with it's, there's almost a sense that historically the church just didn't know what to do with somebody like that because they didn't see them standing up in the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And that's mm-hmm. when the, you know, that's when we're gathered. That's when that, that happens. Um, and part of that is you see those people leading you up in front of you. Um but what happens when we leave this place? Well, so many good Christian folks kind of hang their faith up at the door and then walk on out and head back to their mm-hmm. their the world they live in. And I think the more we've done that, and the more we've connected the church to the rest of the world and tried to start articulating things like vocation. What does it mean to be in vocation, not to have a job? You know, mm-hmm. what does it mean to live a life that's faithful and um, and and to serve God in the ways you serve the world and um, those kind of things. But having those positions, um, since I've been here, you've been a constant reminder to me that we're connected to much. We're, we're connected much deeper into the community mm-hmm. than we we ever realized we are. You know? I am. Um, 
you know, before I made my change, before I went to work for the state of South Carolina, um, you know, I was I I had an experience where I pretty much worked in a good sample of the various sizes of congregations in the United Methodist Church at the time. You know, I I I served in a small rural church as a minister of Christian education. Um, I served. I started out in and served in two pretty much very well established, you know, old congregations that really were kind of in a maintenance mode. Sure. Um, to be honest. And then my last appointment in the United Methodist Church was a suburban church that was huge. Yeah. It just exploded for South Carolina. You know, the church at that point, I don't know what it is now, but it had twenty six hundred members. Oh wow. You know, when I when I did my ministries, you know, I would have three hundred to four hundred people in Sunday school and my children's programs, you know, I have to have seventy teachers. Wow. You know, on any given <laughs> You know, for a year, you know, my youth, the youth, and I didn't do youth ministry. We had a youth minister, but I did the educational pieces, so I had to. I worked with them for that. But you know, we'd have a hundred youth, and it, you know, it it was such that when I joined the state, when I made the move from there to go to the state, two things happened that really helped me move into this. You know, I, I loved education. I loved Christian education. I loved faith formation. Um, when my first churches uh, that I served in, my youth coordinators, the husband, worked for the Department of Alcohol and Other Drug Abuse Services. And he asked me one day, if I wanted to go to a training for a faith-based curriculum where churches, people in the church, were taught how to prevent substance abuse Mm. and misuse. And it was actually, I found out later, that it was actually written by a United Methodist minister who served up in Rock Hill, and it was a weekend event. So, you know, and it was age, it was graded by age. So he had all this material, and you would work with a group either from younger elementary, older elementary, middle school, and then high school. And so I went, and I was hooked. Now, that was the first time, okay, that I saw the church dealing with a social issue, utilizing an educational approach. And to me, I was hooked. I Mm. absolutely loved it. What did you like about it? I mean, was it the substance? Was it the intentionality? Was it, what did you like about it so much? I like the interaction with, with the different target groups. Mm -hmm. I loved going to other churches and working with, with membership now that wasn't that wasn't the only thing I had done mm-hmm. um, because I was very fortunate that when I started because of my wife we we pretty much stayed in the Columbia area um, and so I was I was able to stay at churches that were around the district mm-hmm. 
Well, I met folks in Christian education who were like, I mean, they were they were institutions under themselves. Sure. And they took me under their wing. And so I got to do a lot of training, a lot of training, um, where I would go to Lake Junaluska. And Lake Junaluska is in, in North Carolina. It's where the southeastern jurisdiction offices are for the United Methodist Church. And so they would do what they would call labs for Christian education. And you would go up there for a week or two, and you could specialize in a specific age group, adults, senior adults, junior high. And you would be trained in you know, educational theory, you know, child development theory, curriculum development, all that. What I would have to do when I do that, I would literally have to write a, a lesson plan, a training plan that I could take back to my you know, district, conference, church, and then I could begin to train people on how to effectively teach, you know, um, children, youth, adults. So that links into that faith formation type activity. But, you know, so that when I made that change, when I saw this other piece, you know, the education, yes, I had the background for it because it was a Christian education activity. The alcohol and drug piece was, you know, my wife basically was in, she, she worked, she was appointed in the School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina. And through her, you know, I would hear about public health. And there are many different types, you know, di- focuses of public health. One of them is health promotion and education. Um, when I was serving in my two churches, uh, in Casey and, you know, uh, in Columbia, the state of South Carolina um, has, by state statute, there are, every county has access to a county alcohol and drug authority. That authority um, is charged with creating a organization, so an agency, where they are charged to, to do prevention, intervention, and treatment, and now recovery services for that state. So um, what I was invited to do, I was invited to participate in a county-wide um, effort put on by the local county authority in, in Lexington and Richland County, and I was asked, since I was served in a church, if I wanted to be on the interfaith committee. And that interfaith committee was tasked to look at the needs of faith communities, interfaith, key, interfaith. Not all Christian, mm-hmm. but you know, Buddhist, Jewish, Baha'i, anybody who wanted to come to the table. And we were supposed to see what the needs were, and then we were to write an action plan that we could then implement to build that capacity among those faith communities to address this issue. You know, I, I still think just listening to this gets me a little bit excited because I think that's the place that we have we have let go of some of that. We have let go of some of, and not what exactly what you're talking about, but what we have well what we have let go of as a as a as a church, as a church body is the idea that when when a 
pastor or deacon gets out of seminary, well, you're ready, go. And then there's no other training. There's no other ways of looking at the problems other than the local parish taking interest in something and trying their best to figure out some kind of solution to it instead of some kind of body-wide training that we go to. I mean, um, now I've heard from my colleagues, and, and I feel this way sometimes too, we're so busy and so dedicated to what we're trying to do in the local parish, it's hard to stop and go to these things for training. So I get that there's issues and problems around it, but but the idea that we could we could identify problems and have agencies and organizations that we partner with that can come in and help train us to to actually move the needle mm-hmm. on an issue or problem that that not just our community is dealing with but people in our own congregations are are yes. wrestling with yes um i mean that's that is that is so so true sure because when when i got on this committee and i got to see basically community development I got to see partnerships between faith communities and other segments of the community, business, education, parents, mm-hmm. law enforcement, you know, all of that working together. I really wanted to figure out, okay, how can I be a part of this more long term? And so that pretty much, you know, some would say that I really love going back to school. Well, I decided <laughs> that I was going to go back to school. And so that's, where I went to get a master's of public health. Sure. And so I was going to concentrate on prevention because I was able then, you know, as part of that curriculum, I was, I I had to do a practicum. Well, because of my relationship built through that volunteer work, I was able to treat that as my practicum requirement. And so, you know, I, I, I did all kinds of things. I, I created, you know, I looked at books that, and did like study guides for it or training things. I mean, it was all good now. Well, and I'll just say this before you go. The next thing is that there's, there's three things that you need to have in order to really move the needle and push things forward. You need to have people, you know, you need to have training, you need to have resources. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and often we find two of the three. Sometimes it's just one. Sometimes there's a few people that are just like, I wish we could do this. And they, they don't have a clue how to start. They don't have any resources to do anything with. And they come up sometimes with some incredible things, but it just never gets off the ground much more than maybe a year's worth of programming. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally people throw money at things, but without training and actually, you know, Getting people to move forward in that direction is just money. I found like I find that uh, we have a couple things that come out every year, um, and opportunities for uh, our congregations to to apply for some grants uh, that come out of the um, uh, the South Carolina Synod. Um, I think it's a great initiative, but there's zero training behind it. It's just if y'all can think of a, something new, apply, and if if a small committee likes it, we'll. Maybe try to fund some of it. Yes, I, I, I think, and and we're lacking that third part every well, time. You well, know? well, let me tell you, Pastor Wade, is that okay? I want you to envision. I want you to envision if you right now, or early in your ministry, that you you decided to make a change, and you go to work for state government. 
because when I decided, I, 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 when I graduated with my master's of public health, there wasn't a lot of opportunity job-wise for me. And honestly, I'm not saying anything. It's just a fact of life that, you know, the role that we take in ministry is not necessarily viewed in the same way when you try to apply that consistently. When you're trying to apply for a of a secular job, let's say that, because they're images. You know, I I didn't have a strictly nine to five background. Mm-hmm. You know, I I for me, I had to articulate and say that. You know, my last church, like I said, one of them, I said I had to manage people. I had to rely on, you know, what I learned in seminary was looking at how to communicate effectively, how to manage, you know, an institution that at times is a business, but folks don't want to think of it as a business. Because how do you say the body of Christ is a business? Mm -hmm. But yet, at the end of the day, you have to manage a budget. You have to keep the lights on. You have to have heat. You have to deal with repairs. All of that that someone in business would do. When you look at creating ministry, you need to have a ministry plan. But it's not the same, viewed as the same as if I was in my job and I have to do a five-year strategic plan or a three-year strategic plan or I'm supposed to create a dashboard with different indicators and variables. So how do we do that? So here I'm, I transition. You know, I actually spent some more time in the church before my job I applied. And the reason I, I looked at that job was that at that point, the director of the Department of Alcohol and Other Drug Abuse Services wanted to do an initiative for faith-based communities. So they wanted to hire someone who would work with faith communities in order, along with this system of county alcohol and drug authorities, to match those two together so they could do this training, collaborations, and all that partnership. And so I joined state government, and at that point, the agency I stepped into was about a hundred it still was one of the smallest agencies of the state government, but it was over a hundred and twenty five hundred and thirty people. Mm-hmm. When I was in the church, um, my last appointment or any appointment I was in, if I had a need, simple need, if I had to buy a curriculum, if I needed a computer, if I needed a printer, all I had to do was just call one person. Or I called my pastor who I was working with and I said you know, can I, do you have in your budget? Yes. He said, okay, well, go get it and I will sign it because, you know, there, yeah. there are those processes. State government, it was layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And so, and it was a totally different language. Sure. That's another thing. When I went into public health and I went into dealing with, um, you know, looking at risk and protective factors and looking at, you know, developmental assets or looking at X, Y, Z. I knew 
what the language of faith was so that I could go speak to a pastor or head of a, of a judicatory across South Carolina. But I didn't necessarily know how, to, how that automatically had to translate the language that my agency wanted me to use mm-hmm. so that it would resonate with <clears throat> these peop- the, the folks I was, I was trying to reach in the community. Plus, there's not – there's a lot of – and I'm talking from my own personal experience over my 22 years at Deodas. I couldn't go to just one entity – and touch every single faith group in South Carolina. I didn't necessarily get to a Pastor Wade in his congregation. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to go through synod leadership or the Baptist Convention or the Episcopal Diocese or the Catholic And sometimes when I would make those connections, they didn't quite know how to, do this this substance abuse thing because they didn't have the structure for it. Mm-hmm. There wasn't right. someone on staff that they could gear me to. Plus, depending on your autonomy as a pastor, and I'm I'm, I'm doing this because I want to get back to, to your earlier comments about training pastors. When I had to go through all these hoops, at the end of the day, you were my gatekeeper. Sure, I had to get to you because. You were the one who was, was going to allow me to come into your church. And, and to we, what level you're going and, to get into the exactly. church. Absolutely. And then how do I motivate you to do it? And honestly, because of my experience, you know, sometimes because you as a pastor, particularly if you're in a multi-staff church, you didn't have time for all that. If you had hired me or the church had called me, or whatever terminology you want to do, and I did the age-level work, or I did, you expected me to do that stuff. I became your surrogate gatekeeper. So I kept trying to tell folks, because you know, folks that I worked with was, you need to go talk to the pastor, you need to talk to the pastor. I said, yes, the pastor, he or she, have the final say, but they can't do everything. So if they're multi-level, we need to think about the deacons or the directors of Christian education or the youth workers or that volunteer that's constantly there that kind of does that kind of ministry. And so that's that's who we need to touch. So fast forward now, you know, like I said, I, I retired. Um, over my 22 years, I spent 22 years bringing together where I could my experiences in the, in the church, you know, my seminary education, my um, the work that I did in the church, the mentors I had, and all of a sudden working for state government. And what I learned there, how to do engagement, how to do accountability, how to write a grant, how to do X, Y, Z, how to manage money, um, you know, how to deal with the federal government, how to, how to delay people. So how do, how do I bring that together? So we get to that point where um, it, it, it's one of those things where I still, at this point, would love to give, 
but what is the structure? Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about the ELCA. No, right. You no, know, I'm talking about everything. How is that? How how is that done? How is that? How, how do you break into that and and do that and get into that kind of kind of sense? I think that's the I think that's the magical question. You know, does it happen in the local parish? Does it happen on the synodical level? Does it happen through the ELCA? Does it happen? Does it need to happen in seminary? Right. I mean, I'm thinking about all these things that when when they cut me loose out into a a, a parish. You know, when I was ordained and I took my first call, you know, there was a lot of things I felt very prepared for. You know, you know, theologically, I felt very prepared. I, you know, I know I will grow in my articulation of that and my understanding of that, but I felt ready, you know, to kind of head out in there. I, I felt ready to get up and give a sermon. Going back and reading some of those old sermons, holy crap, you know, thank God I've grown in that area. But, but you know, I still felt ready to actually give a sermon, you know. Um, you know, I'll tell you what, some of the things you just mentioned that we weren't ready for, you know, you, you didn't learn in the church how to hold and bring accountability to a place. No. You know, I, I mean, I unless you graduated with some kind of finance degree, you didn't learn how to manage money no. in the church. Um and I again I don't know who takes responsibility for that or who who needs to take that on to be able to hand that out. I you know at some point you say, well, you know, you hope seminary takes that on. Um but you know, we've had Dean Shore on. They're doing everything they can do in the three to four years they have with those candidates to get them prepared for the just to start ministry. You know, do you do you hand it to the bishops and and let them disseminate out I don't know. I mean, we've had our assistants to the bishop on, and you know they're doing everything they can do to mm-hmm. to to help equip their roster leaders at this. Who do you? I mean, how do you get that to that point? I don't know. I I do know that I continue to go back to the very center of of my call to ministry, um, Ephesians four twelve. You know, I, I'm here to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, and a big part of that tells me that I'm not here to to carry out all the work i'm here to help each person around me carry out that work mm-hmm. um so uh you know a part of it falls on my shoulders to say um how do we partner with our state agencies or our um uh you know local community how do we partner with people that have that experience well i think you first have to look within your congregation you know who has those kind of world I'll say worldly, but I don't mean that in a bad way. Who who has those those real life experiences that can come in and help us take on some of those things in our own congregation? But if we don't have professional people doing that, deacons and and others that are really connecting us to the world around us, um, then then we're still going to fall short in that and. And I think that's what I'm I'm very proud of that I think we're starting to and I'll say starting to I mean from the last several years really getting good language in place figuring out what to do with people on the roster track that is not the traditional ordained ministry track helping people find those spots and then encouraging our pastors to be more open to being the I mean you talk about being the gatekeeper unlocking the gate well, also, I, almost, I, I, I had a thought, too. I think that 
you know, if you look on paper, I basically have two, and one of them is very outdated now, but I have two separate resumes. Yeah, sure. I have one that's church focused mm-hmm. that lists every congregation that I've been a, I've been a part of, all my all my responsibilities, all the trainings that I had, everything, you know. And then I have mine that's a little bit more secular in focus, and it really focuses on my work at Diotis and the different positions that I had over my twenty two years there. If I go into each group, if I came to a congregation right now and wanted to serve, you know, the thought would be, well, you've been a little distanced from the church. You haven't really practiced those skills that we really, Mm -hmm. really need. You know, when have you really dealt with crisis or walked with somebody who was going through a suit. So it's that pastoral care type piece. Or, you know, when have you led worship or when have you done X, Y, Z? I will say this. That other event that I had at, at Deotis was that Deotis had an executive director at the time when I was becoming a deacon, well, a diaconal minister in the LCA. And as you know, you have to have a call. Sure. Well, I'm sitting in a state agency, and I had already invested, you know, a lot of time at that point. I'd already been at Deodas at that point, maybe 15, 12 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know. So what do we do? Well, you know. Yeah, practically and financially, it doesn't make sense to – Take a left turn here. A state agency, as you know, cannot request somebody, or they can't. They can't technically call somebody. So the thing was that you know the city council called on behalf of. Well, I had to have a letter to go. So I had my boss at the time, my direct supervisor, and another colleague. We went and talked to the director, um, it was a male, to ask him if he would be willing to sign that letter. You know, it's it's kind of odd. Mm-hmm. You know, he never hesitated. Wow. He was like, <clears throat> yes, I'll be glad to. But at that point, everybody knew that I, I had a church background, that I had served in the church, that I had done those things. Well, and even though it was a state agency, you you lived into some of that a little bit, I think I've heard you talk about. Oh, yes. I mean, the, the director at that agency at the time, and I know it's it's there's a delineation. Well, right, know, between, and they understood between, that too. But I'm, I'm talking about between an ordained, you know, minister and a deacon. But in that gentleman's mind... I was your traditional minister. I hmm. was I was Deotis's minister. I was their pastor. Sure. And I mean, he would introduce me to to officials from the federal government <laughs> when it got to my name. I mean, he was very very comfortable with it. It sure. was it was an integral part of who they were. And you know, I, I over my career, I can sit here and tell you, you know, 
when a, when one of my colleagues got sick, when they passed away unexpectedly, when there was, I had so much pastoral care that I'm like, yeah. When when it comes to looking at church beyond the walls of the building, in my role, and I'm just going to be honest, yeah, I related to many different denominations. I related to many different faiths. I spoke with the Catholic Bishop of Charleston. Oh, wow. I spoke with heads of, you know, some of the larger um, African-American denominations, groups in South Carolina. I, I interacted with folks that, to be blunt, I wasn't supposed to interact with. Sure. I wasn't supposed to go there. I wasn't supposed to sit with them. I wasn't supposed to talk with them. But in my work, I related and spoke to people who lived and live with HIV, Mm -hmm. who live with AIDS, who have an addiction, who have faced, you know, discrimination, racism, all of that. And honestly, I don't think I would have had that experience for me if I had stayed in the track I was in. Sure. And so... Even inside the four walls of a congregation. uh, Yes. Yeah. And so I think it empowered my sense of leadership and helped me get my voice because, you know, I am a product of the 60s. The 70s, the 80s, um, there were certain things I was told not to talk about. You know, the questions that I was asked when I was going through ordination, you wouldn't, I don't know whether you would ask today. Mm-hmm. And at the time, my eyes kind of went up a little bit, but I kind of knew what they were trying to ask. But it's like, you know, I can remember um, the first time that I was in my work. You know, I did a lot of of some of my projects were in local congregations. Um, Some of them in the largest or larger African-American congregations in, in the city. And, you know, having that experience listening, experiencing their worship, going to worship. And, and the way the way I was welcomed, it just, yeah. you know, blew my mind. You know, I, I, I'll be honest. I had, I guess when I was appointed and come in that first Sunday, I came to a church I was working in. But just to walk in, and I just, I'll be honest, I wanted to kind of just go in, do what I needed to do, sit in the back, um, and then just go home. And the minute I stepped foot on the campus, the minute I walked in the building, I was surrounded. They were waiting for me to be there. 
and welcomed. I never felt so welcomed in my life. I mean, they said, well, you know, they, they, they escorted me into the sanctuary. So I was thinking, you know, they would let me stop where I would go. No, they took me to the very front of the church. <laughs> this was a huge sanctuary. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, it's those experiences that I've had that I wouldn't, I wouldn't give anything for them. But it hasn't always been easy. Oh, well, sure. Because it's, it's, it's to the point where, you know, as a leader, you know, leadership is fostered and grown because there's others that you come in contact with that, you know, help put that fertilizer on it and help water it. And, you know, working beyond the local church, it was very, it was difficult. It was, there were times when I felt very isolated. Now, sure. But, you know, and this is to you, Pastor Wade, you were my connection to the church. You were my, you were my connection to the collegial body of rostered leaders. Mm -hmm. And, having that and other pastors here and having the ability to serve here mm -hmm. and to kind of challenge me to do things that I thought I had, you know, set aside. Sure. You know, the ability to preach or assist with worship, um, the ability to teach confirmation, you know, to really get, to have opportunities to lead Sunday school classes, work with the youth, work with my wife on projects, you know, those type of things, because that was my, that was my grounding. Yeah. That, that was, that was the thing that really made me see, because there were a lot of people I worked with at Deotis who didn't, I think to this day, they didn't know that it was my call. It yeah. was my ministry and what that meant. It was it was my, you know, profession. It was my my responsibilities. It was my task. It was my, you know, what I was paid to do. Yeah, kind of thing. Uh, you know, I sit here and, and I'm I'm listening to you talk about your experiences and those kind of things, and that that is the core, or at least a major part. Maybe the core. I shouldn't say the core. A core is is Christ, but. Um, but it is a major part of what it means to be a leader, a faithful leader in the world, a faithful leader in the church, is to have experiences that you can point back to, right? It's, the, it's those moments where you can point back to and say, I've experienced Christ in these ways, these real-life ways um, of welcome in an African-American church or a, of, of connecting to uh, someone struggling with addiction or, you know, those kind of real-life experiences that you can point back to and say Jesus Christ was there in the midst of that moment. Mm -hmm. um, so that when you do stand up in a pulpit, when you do stand in front of a Sunday school class, when you do stand in front of a confirmation class, I mean, probably there more than anywhere, but um, you have something to say mm -hmm. that has substance and real-life experience connected to that deep faith. Um, you know, I, I, I laugh all the time as we have interns come in and out of this congregation. Um, some have been in just incredible, 
um, gifts to ministry, and some have really had to work at it. But like on both sides, the ones that come in on their first day, whether they're you know twenty six years old or sixty six years old or one hundred and six years old, um, they haven't had some of those experiences in life. Now you know the ones that have lived long lives and then come into the ministry they they come from a very different experiential place. But but it's it's night and day from the first day they walk in to the day they walk out a year later because of the experiences they've had with the people of God in different situations. Um, you know, to hear the first sermon an intern gives and the last sermon they give is, <laughs> you know, you go, this is a different person. Mm-hmm. Thank God it's a different person. Um, and it's because of the experiences they've had. So to hear you talk about the experiences you've had, you know, Harry, you are you are this very unique creation then of of a not just church leader, but of a person mm-hmm. that God is called to to live out this life of faith in this world, um, and we all are to some degree. But you're a really unique version of that as a leader in the church and a leader in the world. Um, as you stand in before, I mean, confirmations where where you and I, you know, get to spend a lot of time together. But to see you be able to to interact with these these kids in ways that I can't, your wife can't, others can't, because you've had these experiences, and that's where it comes from. And it's awesome to it's awesome to watch. Um, I think that that is where anybody you work with anybody you deal with can see i mean i think we all can is this person authentic or not i mean that's we all have that kind of built into us and i think your experiences have led you know 13 year old boys and girls to look at you and say this guy he's authentic he he cares about what's happening here and i'll i'll give my attention to that um versus others that have come in and said let me tell you how to you know a thirteen-year-old could see right through that. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh my I know. I know. You know. I think. I think. You know. The, the the fundamental thing, though, is I think we all grapple with is what does it mean to be a servant leader? That's right. Um, I think everybody wrestles with that. And I think for me, um, I think one of the things I've struggled with is that. You know, I I don't want this to sound bad, but you know, the 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 human the human part of me is, you know, there there kind of times when you know I wouldn't mind being patted on the back a little bit, sure. and told you know you're doing a superb job. I mean, this is absolutely wonderful, and you know you're you're great, and and you know. Those those are are success moments, or how I can track and say, okay, whew, I'm successful in what I'm supposed to do. But you know, at the end of the day, I've had some of those, as you have, as everybody has. I've given some of those, mm-hmm. but the truly all moments are when. I really don't think 
I think I'm falling short of my leadership goals. And I don't think that I have made a difference at all, sure. either in that moment, even over time, even whatever. And all of a sudden that word comes and you're reminded, you know, it's, it's, it's the unexpected yeah. where you're the most effective with, with what you're doing. And it's, it's, it's who you are. And we're reminded of who we are. And I think I shared this with, with you one time, and I, I know we've been talking a long time, Pastor Clay, but, yeah. but there was, um, I think I, I shared this in one of our last um, Bible study experience. I think it was a vacation Bible school. But I was I would take walks at my office, mm-hmm. and and it was on one of my walks where there was a, a gentleman who was sitting on the sidewalk, back up against a fence. They were doing some some you know remodeling of a building, and you know our our facility, you know my my agency. You met where it sat. On Main Street and Laurel, you you, you had a, a a microcosm of folks, you know, and this gentleman was very, you know, uh, he liked to reach out and talk to folks, and would ask them things, and I would kind of get in the zone when I would do my walks because I would I, I didn't have a lot of time to do it, and so I didn't really want to get bothered be honest with you. And I kind of monitored, you know, I kind of went around and I knew I was going to pass him by again. And there was a part of it was like, you know, maybe he won't be here. And, mm-hmm. but as I went through and this, this was, this was around, I forgot what time this was, but either here or there, but I mean, I come around, he's still sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, you know, just, to be honest, I thought, okay, I'll just get by mm-hmm. and I'll get going. I'll get back to my desk and I'll end my day and I'll go home. And as I go, I hear, Mr. Sir, Mr. Now, part of me wanted to assume that there was another Mr. behind me or someone close enough that I could maybe pretend that I didn't hear it and keep on going. But I got that nudge, and I turned around, and I said, yes, sir. And he looked at me, and he said, can you give me a cross? Do you have a cross to give me? And I just stopped. Yeah, not money. Not Not money, but a cross. And I'm thinking to myself, Oh, my word. I mean, I froze for a moment. The only cross I had on me had very special significance for me. And I didn't want to give it up. Mm -hmm. So I said, no, I don't have a cross that I can give you. And he was okay. I mean, you know, he... Went back to doing, and I walked away. But I thought, what, what a, 
for me, a theological moment. Hmm. Because at that point, my deaconhood just exploded. And it's like, how in the world? What are the odds that someone would stop me? And and I'll be honest, I almost, I kept looking out the window of my building to see if it was there. I almost went back out there and handed in my cross that I had around my neck. But, and I'll always wonder if I did wrong. And some who are listening to this right now will probably say, man, you really messed up. Well, I probably did. But that gentleman will have more of an impact on me. Yeah. Because I can tell you right now, the next time someone asks me for a cross, my cross is going to come off my neck, mm-hmm. and I'm going to hand it to them. And who knows, if I'm out, maybe I'll have some pocket crosses in my hand. Well, it also, I think, puts into perspective your call, mm-hmm. right? I mean, definitely. you know, what, what he handed you was a, a chance to really reflect back on your your life and your life of faith and your life of of service and your your just your whole call. You're called to give away yeah. the cross, yes. right? A called leader in the Christian church, but also a called leader in the ELCA. Mm-hmm. And you know, that to me brings it all back together. Yeah. Because what what I've always embraced or was always resonate with me is what does it mean to be a servant leader yeah so that you know one of the things that that we were were hopefully we're going to get to was the idea of confirmation well it is and and what you said a minute ago was was leading me right there because you said you know the human side of us wants somebody to kind of pat us on the back say hey you've done a great job it is it, going out the back of the church. It's nice to hear people say every now and then, "Hey, good sermon today," or you know, whatever. But well, one of my favorite shows is called Parks and Recreation. It um, mm-hmm. and I've watched it probably through five or six times. Um, and there's a line out of it, and they're in state government. They're you know they're doing this thing, and one of the one of the one of the lines out of that show was from one of the main characters to another, he said, um, he said, you're in a thankless job. Don't, don't turn around and look for thanks. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, in a thankless job, you can't expect there to be thank yous. So where do you get those affirmations, those measurements to say, I'm on the right path. I'm doing what I'm called to do. I am giving the cross away, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, when I think about confirmation, the very place that you are deeply in, connected to in our congregation, um, you know, I, they're not a thirteen-year-old is not going to come up and say, you know, I really enjoyed the the the, the, um, the lecture today or the, the or the lesson today or whatever. Mm-mm. But their faith lives on to tell a different story right yes, sir. and 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 the ways we connect with them and the 
the things that we have have tried to implement and tried to come you know to communicate across to them you know i think about one young man in our 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 confirmation class that we don't see him on sunday mornings at worship i mean every now and then i think he's come once or twice um but that is only because he was brought to confirmation you're going to go through confirmation you know um and whether it's grandma, mom, dad, whoever, you know, is saying, you're going to do this. And so he would sit over there kind of looking down. I mean, and then all of a sudden he started participating. And then all of a sudden, you know, and and this was over months. Mm-hmm. And then he went to camp. And then he brought somebody to confirmation. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, now he's saying, I'm not missing this. You know, um, I think is a powerful statement and witness to to what it is that we are called to do in this place. Mm-hmm. We are called to give the cross away, mm-hmm. and and to to again, you're not going to get verbal affirmation that that was happening, but to see something in his life change, mm-hmm. you know. And then I look at you know my daughters in there and other other of of our um, our students who are lifelong members come every Sunday, you know, these kind of things, they're changing too. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the most formidable times in their lives, this faith that they are learning and taking on on themselves is happening. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people I talk to now that says, God, if I could go back and do confirmation over I would take it more seriously. Or I would do this or do that. And they, these will probably say the same thing 30 years from now too. But but I look back on my confirmation experience kind of through the lens of what they're going through. And same thing happened to me. I was changed in those moments. Some of that stuff will stay with me until the, my very dying day and the day I meet Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um some of that stuff, whether I knew it or not, was informing how I live my life in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is just a powerful thing to see. And there are days, I'm telling you, I feel the same way you do. It's like, is, are, is anybody listening to a single thing I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Is anybody getting anything out of this, you know? Well, I mean, that's that's could be any given yes. Sunday sitting there with the confirmands. Yes. Because it's like... I think that for this, you know, it's such a, it's one of those things where, okay, we, we, what is the purpose of confirmation? Right. Confirmation I mean, is, it's time intensive. It sure is. You know, I'm, as I mentioned before, one of the reasons that brought me to this congregation um, was listening you know, conversations I had with my with my wife about, you know, confirmation and what it was like growing up in this congregation and, you know, the two years she spent in confirmation and my eyes just got real big and I went, what? <laughs> you know, you had two years? Oh, yeah, we had two years of confirmation. Well, what does that mean? Oh, it was like every Sunday. What? For how much time? Really? And then when you get here and you kind of talk to folks and they had the same kind of experience. Well, my experience was, if I can remember it, was probably maybe 
four Sundays in a row, maybe a month max, mm-hmm. maybe an hour, a little over an hour. Mm-hmm. Even when I was tasked with leading confirmation in, you know, my congregations I was in, it was always, well, you know, we got to fit it in and, you know, we need to do it. I mean, it was just the nature of the day. It was it was trying to get people there and getting the kids in. And well, it so, hadn't gotten better. And it hadn't. It hadn't. I, I mean, we're seeing some of our institutions, um, our camps, kind of let go of the the heavy lifting of confirmation. And it's a response to the rest of the world, right? I mean, it's a spot response of just trying to get people to say, okay, I'll go to camp or I'll, I'll do this or I'll do that. Um, this congregation has taken that seriously. And while things, some things have become more relaxed here and there, I, th- I think, I think the heaviness of confirmation needs to stay. And, and I'm, you know, I'm going to brag on Luther Rock um, up in um, Newland. Um, but Luther Rock still encourages weeks of confirmation. They still encourage their pastors to be a vital part of that, that confirmation um, week. They encourage, um, you know, the heavy lifting of those things while they're having fun at camp. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so many so many of our we, – we had the same conversation around um, our council requirements. You know, we still, we still ask people to serve for three years. And so many of the congregations around us are moving to two years, one year. Can you give us six months? Can you give us and, – and I think, you know, we're all trying to figure it out. I'm not blaming them or pointing I mean, at them. It's, 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 like you say, it is, it is, a, it is a reality. Yeah of of this day and time and if we don't address that reality that's right then you know how are we going to go about doing the ministry that we need to do and so well and if faith is that important to form Mm -hmm. and to gift you know then can we do it in a month of sundays can we do it in i'm not sure we can't you know, we, we talk about this being a lifelong process. Well, I mean, let's 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 just put it this way. You know, Pastor Wade, you and I could sit down today, we could map out what they what needs to be covered, we could provide a resource, mm-hmm. we could send a letter to the parents and say, This is what you need to cover with your kids. It's up to you to decide. Y'all can read it, you can watch it on TV, you can do whatever you want to do. Yep. And then at this point, you are going to be confirmed, but the responsibility is on you to do that training. I mean, let's go back. Let's let's look at since in the LCA we we are looking at the small catechism. Why did Luther create the small catechism to begin with? Because he saw an active role of parents in the home right. to to train. It's a partnership between the congregation between the parents. I mean, let's go back to baptism. Yep. We make a statement when we baptize a child, you know, and I'll be honest, one of the reasons why I'm teaching confirmation is, one, I see the value of confirmation. Two, I enjoy interacting with young people. But three, I've sat in those services, and I've made that statement that I'm going to help, you know, Put the scripture in their hands and yep. help them 
understand what it means to be a baptized child of God and how to live that out. That resonated with me. And so it's a part of who I am, and it's a part of my sense of that servant leadership yep. that I'm trying to foster and, and grow. If Where are the young people, where, where are the folks going to gain this understanding and realize that, and this might be too simple, but it's kind of, you know, I think it's still standard, is we're not asking someone, when we ask someone to share their faith in a classroom setting, in a small group work, say a prayer at a council meeting or, you know, pray at this event or do a devotion, whatever that would be, we're not asking them to do something that is grounded in a three-year academic experience right. and you know professional development and all these other things, i.e., we're not expecting you to be ordained or, or, or ordained-like, if I could say that. Mm-hmm. To do this, you know, I I I tell people I, I can I can remember, you know, that um, I personally wish if I had the opportunity that I could go back to seminary. Yeah. Instead of doing it when I did it, I did it. I went straight out of my undergraduate degree, and mentally, maturity. Um, Study skill wise, I was not ready sure. for seminary, and so, you know, I wish I could do it over again. Now, but where are these folks going to get this experience or get the comfort to do this? Where are young people going to do that? And so, if we don't, if we don't have these these opportunities for, you know training or skill development or faith formation sure. or whatever, you know, because um, at the end of the day, though, if if we um, bring up any topic, and we did it Sunday, you know, Martin Luther, Reformation, small catechism, X, Y, you know, passage of Scripture, all they have to do is pick up whatever little electronic device they have. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could pick up my phone. I could pick up my tablet. I could pick up my laptop. They could have unfathomable amounts of information looking at those same things. And they could read it or not read it to their heart's content. And there's still a little bit of that background is that, well, if I need it, I can always look it up. But... It's hard, particularly for a 13-year-old, and I've said this a lot, is, okay, you have a certain worldview, you have your experiences. Some of you might have had more, you know, weighty or heavier issues that you've had to deal with than someone else. But that's not to say that you, if you haven't had it now, won't have it in your life. You know, for me, I never envisioned having a melanoma at the bottom of my foot. 
Mm-hmm. I never envisioned that, you know, I would have something that really could have killed me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that, that was the farthest thing from my mind. You know, I've always worried about something else, but that wasn't it. But it was my faith. Yep. It was my community. It was, honestly, it was like, you know, my wife and I knew, you know, yeah, we talked to our daughters, but the next person we wanted to talk to was our pastor. Yeah. Was you. Yeah. And and having you say, yeah, I do think this is going to be all right. But if we don't, if we don't have those moments where we need to have that community yep. or be in that partnership or be in that thing, then we're just drifting. And so, but how do you get them into it? Well, and to ground it into scripture, what I, what I, I keep having run through my brain is, you know, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, except the one true thing in this world, God's presence. Yes. Right, and I'll tell you where I see that play itself out in people who did not have, or probably did not have, the experiences of things like confirmation and faith formation and those type of things. I see it play out in weddings and in funerals. I see it play out all the time. Weddings are more and more not happening at campus, on campus, the church campus, but out into the world, which there's nothing wrong with. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I'm seeing that more and more memorial services are happening out in the world at places that people are, um, you know, whether it be at jobs or where they spend a lot of time, let's put it that way. So we're, we're having, we're having more and more of those kind of things. And, when I talk to these families who are who are searching for some something or somebody to help them with those particular services, um, you know, number one, they're looked at it like that. They're looked at it like I, I would like you to perform a service for me. Well, I can do that. I'm trying to do that. And then their next thing is that um, that. You know, we don't want, or, or they'll start explaining what they want. And in their head, it makes a lot of sense, but there's no meat behind it because they've left Christ out of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've just kind of said, well, you know, if you could just say the magic words or if you could just, you know, lead this part and tell some stories about it. Really? Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, not to pick on this one particular person, but, um, because this happens a ton, um, but I'll ask a I'll ask a, um, a person to tell me about their spouse of fifty years or forty years or so, and and they'll say, I mean, really, all all they could come up with are things like, well, you know, you know, she liked to cook spaghetti. That's what. That's the meat of what. That's what you're telling me about your forty something year marriage, or you know that this is. It, it's it's disturbing to me because what they're they're thinking they're looking for has no and again the only word I can come up with is meat like there's no substance and what is the substance it's it's Christ and our faith gives us the ability to see that and to recognize that and to point to it and um and so where are you you're asking kind of the question where do you get that from 
Well, they're going to get something somewhere, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, it's it's almost like you know, parents that don't want to have you know the talk with uh, their kids growing up. Well, they're going to learn about it. They're going to learn about it out in the world somewhere, or we can be intentional about talking about it in ways that make sense, the ways that lift things up as sacred and holy and all the faith faith no different. If we're not having these conversations, if we're not trusting the people around us to have those conversations and facilitating these kind of conversations, but even more than that, where do those where do those conversations happen? Well, they do happen in formal confirmation training. But one of the things that I value so much in the ways we've restructured our our confirmation, that conversation happens when we're sitting around eating pizza. Mm-hmm all together, enjoying one another's company, checking in with each other, building relationships with each other, and them seeing, going back to all the stuff we were just talking about, them seeing your experience and authenticity, your wife's experience and authenticity, my experience and authenticity say, we really do care about you. We really do want to have some deep conversations, and we want you to ask us questions that we may not have answers to. Mm-hmm. Um and doing that over and over and over and over again over a two-year span and then creating more opportunities throughout the, their lives of faith to ask more questions and to be more conversation. And, and that is key yep. because they need to know that this is not a one-and-done kind of experience. Yeah, you didn't graduate from church. Right. You, you, <laughs> you, 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 I'm sorry, but uh, this is just the beginning yep. because it, it, and you don't know when it's going to happen. You know, it's, it's, we, faith to me is engagement. Yep. It is, it is grappling with things and issues and words in the book that I don't want to grapple with. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't, mm -mm. you know, there is a part of me like everybody else. If you could just give me the key. You know, tell me, give me, give me the, you know, in the day it was like the Cliff Note version, mm-hmm. or you know, maybe the little Wikipedia write up, or something you could put in a text or whatever that really sums it up. Yep, and it tells me what I need to do and when I need to do it. Um, I will do it because I want to. I want the the benefit, but because I don't want to get into the dirty, I don't want to get into the into the gray. I don't want to, I don't want to have to, you know, deal with all these emotions sure. that come or, you know, have to, have to sit down and, and talk about something or face something or, or those scary words, you know, like, you know, am I really going to be judged or am I, am I, uh, you know, in that moment, like I was telling you about the cross, was God in front of me? Was Jesus in that moment? I mean, was what really was 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 that an angel in front of me asking me for a cross? Mm-hmm. And if it was, Harry Pram, you failed miserably. <laughs> but because of my experiences and where I am, and even you know from Sunday, I heard my pastor. 
tell the confirmands that I overheard that you are so loved that there is nothing you can do that will break that bond that that you know and the sermon was that you know the spirit god jesus they 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 want that to find that lost coin you know we know where those 99 are and that's okay but they're going to do everything to get that one they're going to celebrate that one or that shit or however you know i can put those two together but if i wasn't in a space where i heard that and i've heard it enough that it's become a part of me and 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 inside me then where am i yeah all i can think about is i have failed i'm in terrible terrible trouble but then then i've done everything I know all this stuff. I'm great. Here's somebody over here who has done nothing. The bare minimum. Horrific. Horrendous things. And yet, they do that thing. And I'm not even going to name what that thing is. But they have done that thing where they have experienced repentance and forgiveness now how am i supposed to react to that mm-hmm. really uh-uh because you did something that was horrendous ah can't forget that even though that's what i've read in the book yeah i've got to forget and forgive that's what i have heard by people who are trained in this i have read the same things and so you know i think that that you know this thing called faith and as a leader how do we stand in the trenches to both those groups and welcome in that person who has you know experienced redemption and has experienced grace while at the same time dealing with any anger or hurt or frustration or whatever that they just don't understand how we can do that. Yep. How can you let those people in? Well, how many people have you heard? I mean, I still hear it all the time. We're supposed to feel good when we leave church. Really? You have been invited. Your faith invites you in to a wrestling match with God that you're going to leave limping, mm-hmm. right? You're going to leave limping out of it. And through confirmation, we are intentionally putting them in the ring and ringing the bell and saying, round two, go. Yeah. Round three, go. Mm-hmm. And and I think, I mean, you kind of tell it when you told the story of the of the the cross and and I know I experienced this here too. We get so wrapped up in the work that we forget sometimes it really is about the people. Mm-hmm. It really is about um it really is about how do I connect with this person or these people or this congregation or this group. And and I think having 
training sessions. I mean, you to keep the metaphor going a little bit and the scripture going to have training sessions where we are intentionally inviting people in 13, 14 year olds into a ring and saying, it's safe. You can go in here and wrestle, but you're called to wrestle. So go and kind of throwing them in there and letting God get a hold of them and then encouraging them to do what Jacob did. Don't let go of God either connect and keep fighting. I think it lends to a time where 20, 30, 50 years later, you're in a, you're in the midst of something that's pulling your attention away to really kind of go back to that root, that, that foundation and say, no, this is really about this. This is much more about this. I mean, my gosh, I mean, you can talk about marriage that way. You can talk about raising kids that way. You can talk about anything in your life where we get caught up in the everyday and forget it's really about the connection that we have with God and with each other. Yeah, because I think that, you know, in our experience, even with this group that we've got. Which is an amazing group. Yes. It is. You can can see these 13, 14-year-olds. And you can't go beyond their eyes. And you don't know really what's going on in there (laughs) or what they've dealt with. That's right. And then all of a sudden, they they really feel that sense of trust, love, acceptance. And then they just share something that as an adult you just kind of stop and you just kind of look and you're like really not only what they've said and experienced we know adults who would never ever do that yeah they would never share that amount that to that depth they they just they they're just so guarded about that but in that moment in the midst of all their vulnerability and they might not be shouting it from the rooftop no 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 but but it's enough that in that whisper it's like and then we have the moment where you and particularly you passed away you can affirm that and you can say thank you for sharing that yeah you know we heard you I heard you. That took a lot of strength to share that. And so that's part, you know, whether you call it confirmation, whether you call it a youth group, but these things, these ministries need to be balanced. Yep. Fellowship is part. I, I remember that when I would do things, I would try to put all these components together so that any kind of event, when any group was together, I tried, I wanted the fellowship part of it for community. I wanted some of the faith development part of it, and I wanted a little bit of skill building Mm -hmm. because, you know, yes, it's easy that we can punch things in and get it on the the web, but there might be a time when your computer's down or your cell phone doesn't work or there's no cell, there's no, there's no internet, and you might have to pick up the book or you might have to see that or, or if, if, well, what we learned in COVID was, yeah. We checked off all the boxes, but the thing we lacked and missed the deepest was the human connection with another person. Yes. So, yeah, you may can read anything you want to online. Zoom meetings can 
help facilitate some quick things, but it will never replace you and I sitting down over a cup of coffee or whatever and having a real conversation about this. That's so true. And and I think a big part of what COVID took from us was what you just said. All people really want to do at the end of the day is be heard. Mm-hmm. I, I was heard. I, I exist in this world, right? I, I am because somebody heard me. And, you know, we we don't we don't have to answer every question. We don't have to do this. We hear you. That took courage. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing. Um, you know, to to point to um, to point one of the things we do. Or I try to get them to do every time in confirmation is to say, "Hey, pull out your notebooks and write it. Write a small little paragraph, a couple sentences about an a time when something happened or you experienced this." You know, and man, you can see them. I mean, they're writing furiously. Yeah. There's not a one that's not trying to put something down. They've had this experience and they're getting it out of them. Mm-hmm. And there's something therapeutic about that. There's so that we don't force them to share. Yeah, yeah that's yours. That's yeah. your experience. You're kind of lifting it up to God. And, and, you know, those moments capture all of that and give them even more experience then to connect to their faith, to say this is a real thing in this world. Well, I'll say this because I, I think this is this is you know even for an adult too, is that I can remember that I forgot I was, and this is this is like something happened at day. you know I had, uh, you know, I would get so much from the people that I would talk to, and you know faith would come through and they would share their experiences, but I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues, and, you know, chatting, you know. Mm-hmm checking up on each other. And I can remember that I've started talking about something that I was kind of grappling with mm-hmm. or dealing with. And the person looked at me and went, Harry, you know what you need to do? You just need to give it to God. You just need to go place it on the altar of God. And I just kind of stopped. And I went, she said, you just need to put it on the altar of God. And I'm thinking, you know, to me, it's like when they put it on a piece of paper, that's that first step for them to be able to articulate what yeah. eventually they can put on the altar of God. Sure. They can give it to God. They can That burden that Jesus talks about, you know, I can, I can help you carry. I can help carry your burdens. Give me your burdens. Well, that's part of it. Yeah. That gives them... And so, you know, and, and as we represent that body of Christ, you can share your burden with me too. Yep. And and we can, because it's easier, you know, the, the, the age-old thing is that, you know, I can't pick up that sofa and move it, or I can't get that. But, that, we, to, but if we're all we together, it, yeah. we can pick it up and we can move it. Yep. And it's easy, easy, easy to do. Yep. And sometimes we think that we can do it by ourselves, but all we do is could is just hurt something that continues to fester and before we know it it could be something that's chronic well maybe this is a a good ending but but to say the thing i like about what we've done and i think the church has done over over history is to say we are confirming your faith we're affirming that we're not granting it to you we're not saying okay now as of today this happens Um, I point this out to our our 
people going through premarital counseling, um, I will tell them, I hope you learn nothing from premarital counseling because I hope you've had every conversation you can possibly think to have prior to going into marriage. It never happens. We'll always come across something that you haven't discussed or need to think more about. But my hope is that you leave here and go, hmm, that's fine. Because what my goal is to show them is not that I'm going to teach them something about being married, or, or, but is to show them through our conversations that you are already living out your vows to one another. That nothing magical is going to happen that night you get married. What we are going to do is to say, we think you've done a good job up at this point. We want to bless this as the people of God, and we want you to do this for the rest of your lives. That's what we're doing. And and so really in some very similar ways, that's what we're doing at Confirmation. We're saying, see, your faith already exists. See, you're already thinking theologically. See, you're already doing these kind of things. We want to affirm that and say, keep doing it the rest of your life. I don't want to take the last word. No, do. You, you get the last word. But that, not just in Confirmation, but what you just said too, is that I will never, I will, I will never forget this. One of the last weddings we went to, the person who was officiating made this statement. She looked at the couple, and then she said, okay, I want y'all to look around. So everybody's kind of looking around like, where are we going with this? And you know, I've done this before too because it's like, but what she said, she said, you know, there are going to be times when it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be together. You're not going to agree on things. Um, it's feelings are going to get hurt. Frustration is going to come up. In that moment, I want you to remember this. Yep. Remember this moment and put it in context. Spouse was with me, you know. At that moment, I thought, that is still appropriate, even though we've been together for 30-something years. Yep. Because in that moment, we're doing the same thing in confirmation. I think in our own way is to say, guys, gals, confirmands, remember this moment. Remember the space. Remember that you can ask these hard questions. You can go to to God and Christ and the Bible and you can pray and you can you can come to people that are significant in your life. You know, your pastor if it's still me or whoever, you can you can you have this community, you have the support group, you have this moment. That is always with you. And, and, and our liturgy connects to that. Mm-hmm. We don't ask them to stand up alone and say the whole creed by itself and all those kind of things. No. We ask them to take on their faith. They each say yes. And then the first thing we do together as a whole congregation is confess our faith as one voice. Mm-hmm. Let us confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. And we together do that do you believe in god the father you know do you believe in god the son um and then we welcome you into the mission we share right i mean it's the same language we use around baptism 
Um, we welcome you into the mission that we share together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love your line. Remember this moment. Mm-hmm. We might do that at confirmation this year. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Harry, thanks for being here. This is, uh, I love you. Your, your and I conversations could go on for hours and hours and hours. Uh, so hopefully you'll come back and do this again with me. I would love to. We'll pick up where I we left I thoroughly enjoyed it, Pastor Wade. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And everybody, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you soon.